Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken, episode number 286, recorded June 11th, 2018. And for you guys following along, this will be a continuation of a comic book series we started way back in episode 260. The uh, Star Trek Discovery Light of Kalis. Yeah, back then we did one and two, and today we're wrapping it up with three and four. Exactly. And it's quite a gap in time. Which is not entirely our fault. I mean, a little bit of it is because we uh, have been doing other stuff and we don't always record things in the right order. But the other part is is that uh, this uh, this issue, this, this fourth issue or four. fifth issue. issue yeah, the fourth four. issue. Yeah. It did come out for like six months after it was supposed to come out. So it has a cover date of January 2018, but it didn't actually come out until June, June of 2018. Yeah. It definitely was not available in Comixology until June, and as near as we can tell, same thing for the printed. So, so odd. Weird. We Very weird. Yeah. Well, whatever. We're doing it now. Yep. So, so. we're doing that, and then uh, to, to, so that we always have three, or we try to always have three, we're doing a, a gold key there at the end, just to sweeten this episode. <laughs> So it'll be uh, gold, gold Key number 28, which came out in 1975. Yeah, a little Gold Key cherry on top. Yeah. So a little, not, uh, not one of the better ones. A but. few of the newest issues, along with one of the oldest. Yes. Now, just to remind folks, this whole Light of Kalis thing, it's a prequel to the Discovery TV series. Hopefully the people listening might have gotten the comics and been reading them, and they finished them now, or at least finished three. So, yeah, it's telling the Klingon backstory that leads up to the first couple episodes of Discovery, the TV series. Right. So focusing on Takuvna's childhood right. and how he grew up on the mean streets of Kronos. <laughs> the mean streets of Kronos yeah. uh, in a royal house. Right. Yeah. And then as a monk. Well, later on, yeah. Right, exactly. Right, well, in issue two, he was a monk. Yeah, yeah that's true. But. All right, so again, if you want to read what or listen to what we thought about the first two issues, go back to episode 260. But uh, otherwise, we're about to just jump straight into issue three. Sounds good. All right, so shall we go, Ken? Please. All right, so Star Trek Discovery, The Light of Kalis, number three, came out December 2017 by our favorite publisher, IDW. Uh, it was written by Kristen Bayer and Mike Johnson, art by Tony Shastine, colors by J.D. Mettler, letters by Anne World Design, production design by Neil Utaki, edits by Sarah Gatos, editorial assist by Chase Moratz, and publisher by Greg Goldstein. Since it is an IDW, they got the covers. So the first cover shows an art cover by Tony Shastin, and it's Takuvma kind of screaming at the reader with a little bit of fire in the background. The uh, cover B is a photo cover of Takuvma with his 
fairy purpley play-doh face looking down at the reader the ria cover uh, is a very interesting cover by george calstodas and uh, it kind of looks like a badge a little bit like a, like some sort of badge in the middle but it's it's very oddly shaped uh, but then within the badge, we kind of see uh, Takuma, and then uh, in the middle of the badge, there's the Klingon symbol, and then at the bottom of the badge, we see uh, three different colored Klingons all looking up to the heavens, yelling as if uh, one of their brethren had just passed away. And then the last cover, the R.I.B. cover, is uh, by Deacon Shavley and Jordi Bellarare. And it is of some ship, must have been in the TV show, and I just don't remember it. But it's a very long ship with like a fin or something that hangs down below it. I'm not familiar with it from the actual TV show Discovery. It's not in this comic, so uh, I don't know where it came from. So the story starts with Laurel continuing her story to Vok about how Takuvma gained power. Flashback music happens, and now we're back in the past. So Tuguvma has just learned that his sister's new husband has killed his entire family at his sister's own wedding. Tuguvma is asked to join his sister within this new house or die like the rest of their house. He refuses, and he and his sister actually have a fight using daggers from the floor that are drenched in their family's blood. Tuguvma is able to best his sister, but he does not kill her. He says that if she wants to take the house fine he does not care about that and he tells her that the only thing he wants is the ship that they've been restoring all these years and the bones of his ancestors and then he also says uh, i think he says it here that uh, he has no sister anymore with that takuva and his followers load up the ship with the sarcophagi of all of his ancestors and they prepare to leave they spend a long time carving very detailed, intricate carvings into the decks and walls of the ship. Once completed with all the repairs, the longtime follower of Takuvma named Kel gives Takuvma a golden chest plate. It's the same one that he wears throughout the uh, Star Trek Discovery episode. The great ship then takes off from Kronos and searches for Kalis's beacon. A year later... We see Takuvma's sister, Julia, having a son who turns out to be an albino or white-skinned Klingon, similar to Vakam himself and Kel. She does not seem very pleased with this, and then we flash to a scene where she tells her husband that the baby did not survive. The husband then uses this as an excuse to completely dissolve her house into his since she was not able to provide any heirs, which is against some sort of agreement that he thought they had. Back in the present, Vok interrupts the story that he's quite displeased that his mentor's sister would kill a baby just because its skin looked like his own. Lorel then continues the story. So Takuvma and Kel discuss how difficult finding the beacon will be. They talk about how it's quite possible that they will not find the beacon within their own lifetimes. But then they're interrupted by a notification that a craft of some unknown design is nearing the ship to be continued <laughs> what is that thing that is a weird looking device looks like a disco ball it look a disc a discotheque ball exactly only it's like a future version 
because it's got lights all over it. If this thing was actually some kind of a spy thing, it's not a good spy thing because <laughs> it's got lights everywhere. It's got red lights. It's got blue lights. It's got blinding, bright, white lights. Right. Um, so not a good job on being inconspicuous. I don't know. But it does have a little logo on it that Ooh, I did not, so I did not notice when I first read it. Yes. It is a uh, United Federation Planet logo. Exactly. It says UFP. And it's got, like, the laurel leaves, and then it has some kind of, like, map targeting kind of round circle thing, and it has planets. Yep, that's UFP, United Federation Planets. That's right. Interesting. So it's a communications satellite. It is, well, it's probably a communications satellite of some kind. But it does have an awful lot of lights on it for just being a communications satellite. So Right. So they're out looking for the beacon of Kalis, and yet they find a beacon of the Federation. Mm. Is it poetic justice? I don't know. Might it be equally as inspiring to perhaps a way forward for Chukuma? Mm. Yeah, so I don't know. Is this supposed to be the same one that's at the beginning of Discovery that, that they go to fix? I think so. That, that would fit together quite nicely, wouldn't it? Right. And I think it is. So, anyways, so back to the story. So what do you think of Julia having that little baby? That cute little, that little turtle head? Cute little guy. That cute little turtle head. We pretty much know who that cute little turtle head is, don't we? Um, I'm going to disagree with you, but okay. I think I, it is leaning I say that va. way. I say, I, I say that's – they're hinting towards it. They're hinting towards but it. But he died. She told him that oh, it died. Oh, please. <laughs> oh, please. Yeah. So obviously the sister has shown herself to be quite duplicitous and conniving when she needs to be. Uh, not that I think she's 100% a bad person, bad Klingon, but yeah, yeah, she'll, she'll say anything. And she certainly doesn't want you know, the head of the household to see that uh, she's having the baby of another person, another man, another mm. male Klingon. So how do you know that? I mean, the when the the nursemaid says uh, that it's a uh, that the uh, color is a, a rare color and it is uh, a rare color and surely a sign of greatness to come. So yes, you think that uh, her husband couldn't father a uh, that al color albino or white skinned no Klingon? no I don't think so. I don't know. These, the, all these weird Play-Doh colors are so new to me. I, I'm like, well, who can have uh, that colored kid and who can't? Well, okay. So it seems to me to some degree they flip the colors. So if you're darker skinned, you tend to have a little more uh, standing in the Klingon society. If you're lighter skinned, I think you have not as strong a um, position. I think mm -hmm. there is skin involved. I think this could be uh, a similar kind of situation. I, I don't think it's an albino situation, per se. I think this is a perfectly valid skin color, but I think they're trying to say some kind of thing where if a... <laughs> if two white rich people, the wife ends up having a, a baby that looks uh, uh, like a Negro person, then, uh, you know, it's like... You know, that's probably not my child. And there might mm. be a little bit of a problem. I think that's what they're trying to say. 
But the uh, husband here, he's pinkish or brownish colored, and, and then she's purple. So who's to yeah. say that a yeah. brown Klingon and a purple Klingon can't have a white Klingon? I As really don't. As opposed to a white uh, okay, Klingon well, and a That doesn't work that way Klingon. with people, but these are Klingons, so sure, why not? But I really don't think that's a situation. As we'll see, well, no, we saw. Um, there are ramifications for her not ha- bearing a child. Right. So would, why would she hide the the child and say it died if she didn't have to, if what you're saying is true? Right. I don't know. But I think you, you're probably right, but it's just then, – then it becomes a little too convenient for, for, it, for it all. Plus, convenient. who's the dead? You think it's Kel? The... You're kind of jumping ahead, but – yeah. Well, I'm just saying. You're saying that it's not. Uh, you're not. You're saying that he's. It's not her husband's kid. So who? No. Who's a, that's mm. what. That's what I'm saying. Now, as far as who it is, there are some things that go on in the next issue that indicate it's very possibly Cal. And I know it's been a while, but you know, uh, back in what two fifty issue two fifty or two sixty episode two sixty episode two sixty. In those first two issues, to me. There were some things hinted at when Jakuma first finds the derelict ship and mm-hmm. finds out what his sister's been doing and up to, where she spends a lot of time at this ship with servants, and one of the servants is the head servant kind of guy, Cal, and it seems to me like there might be a little thing going on there between them, although they never came out and said that. Right. And if that yeah. was the case... Even though it took them a long time to do it, I mean, the timing was not good. You know, they might have finally consummated something. And in fact, that might have been the reason why the sister was forced into making a move, getting married, finding this low-life rich guy, and getting married and accelerating her plans. Mm. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I mean, maybe. I don't know it's a lot if I'll bring this back up. Cause... Well, no. But a, a good story doesn't necessarily have to tell you everything. Sure. They leave some things for the reader to figure out themselves. And maybe I'm just making stuff up that isn't there. But well. well, I do think that's where they're leaning towards, maybe. Yeah. Because those are the only two white Klingons we've ever seen. Right. Right. So what do you think of the... Uh... Oh, and also, that would make Vok Takuvma's nephew. Right. So that's an important point. Which um, then makes it, you know, very – it was kind of nepotism that he chose Vak out of all the other people to be true. the light of Kalis. True. Yes. Nepotism, but yeah. Yeah, I guess, I guess so. But this – you know, it's a family ship. Maybe it's not bad nepotism, but yeah. But also uh, Vak stepped forward when sure. others didn't jump forward. And he did the whole candle thing, so it showed he was serious. So maybe yeah, there's a couple of reasons. I forgot about the candle scene. Yeah. So there's lots of things going on here. I kind of like it that they're not telling you everything. You get to figure some things out for yourself. Right. Uh, whether right or wrong, because they're not going to confirm it for you. We looked ahead to the fourth issue, and they didn't confirm anything. So what do you think of the whole birthing scene? I know that you were quite impressed with her uh, childbearing <laughs> well, okay. This is very – I think it was very creative. So they've got this uh, railroad ties, wooden railroad ties <laughs> that are like leaning up 
into kind of a V shape and then nailed or probably nailed into uh, an, a wooden beam going up to the ceiling. And, and she's between these two things and she's giving birth standing up with like three women involved and there's pans below and then out, poop, out comes a little turtle head, a little white <laughs> turtle head. And that looks like a very uncomfortable way to give birth. Right. Yeah, it's it's not how they do it now, kids. No. Uh-uh. <laughs> but there was a show called The Nativity Movie, or The Nativity Story, with Keira Knightley as Mary. Ah. Um, and in it, she goes to um, Elizabeth's house, who has John the Baptist. And they, they actually show that birthing scene. And in that scene, she's also standing up, and she's kind of like holding on to some rafter-type thing and just bearing down and, until the baby drops out. So, um, Standing up? Yeah, standing up. Wow. Very similar to this, except you know her hands are actually kind of like grabbing onto or, or tied to uh, a rafter. Uh, uh, like above pole. her? Yeah. Oh! Huh? And she's just screaming, and it's it's it. (laughs) I was watching it with the kids, and I was like, "Uh, "Yeah, it's different than now when you just go and get your epidural." And I mean, it still hurts. Don't oh, of course, of course. But uh, but (laughs) not nearly as gruesome as as that one. And then later, when Mary has the baby, it's all nice and like quick. Just like (laughs) I mean, she's in pain through the whole thing, but it doesn't. It's not like that one where she's like screaming and hanging from the rafters, literally. But anyway, so she so, was tied to the rafters. She was tied, or or I was holding on, or something. I can't wow. remember. But then it also had a whole bunch of nursemaids kind of standing around, just waiting for the baby to fall out. Right. Kind of, kind of like here. So when I was reading this, I was like, you know, this is very a Klingon way. You know, very more. You know, it's dank and dark, and yeah. looks like it's in a dungeon, a torture dungeon. <laughs> uh, so it, it looks, it looks, you know, crueler. But uh, but basically, it looks medieval. The same thing. Yeah. But basically, the principle is the same thing here, letting gravity do some of the work. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and like from a practical standpoint, having gravity help the baby out is kind of like, oh, that kind of makes sense. But it's like, oh, my God. I mean, look at this. There are two posts or two peg kind of things that she's holding on to that are drilled into these railroad ties. And it looks like it's adjustable, so there's a bunch of holes all the way along. And these handhold pegs can be moved up and down, I guess, depending upon the comfort of the the mother. Right. But, uh, so there's a lot of detail here. I was impressed because I thought this was 100% made up from whole cloth. But it sounds like that's the way births might have happened in the past. Based on one movie that I saw. So well, I'm yeah, not I know. But... That it's an... <laughs> well, or, or, or they saw the movie. Yeah, and, like, hey, this, and they, is... this is great. Let's do this. But let's let's go ahead and make it a little bit more practical with the V-shape thingy. And... <laughs> right. Interesting. Very interesting. So, yeah, it was an interesting scene. And, again, we see that Klingon women's in this comic book, uh, they don't have any type of back ridges or anything, which which I think Klingons are supposed to have. Yeah. They, they look very just normal human with the head. So it's a very human-shaped body, uh, and then their heads are elongated and that's it yeah which i always thought klingons were supposed to look different underneath the clothes and me too and maybe it's just the angle you can't see it but i do think there's like some kind of at least dimpling going on along the uh, spinal column 
with the Klingons, although you can't see it in this you, birthing scene. Here, and I see your back. Well, it's kind of an angle. I mean, cheeks. if you saw it straight on, <laughs> you, well, yeah, you can see her butt cheeks, yes. <laughs> it's just a funny picture. I mean, it's a funny angle. It's like, how sexy can we make this while she's going through this horrific pain? But we we got to make it look sexy for the kids. I don't know. Why sexy? Else, why else try to show the butt cheeks? I don't know. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> well, I I don't know. Uh, I, I don't think this is overtly sexual. <laughs> I don't know. Trying to throw in some some illusion to nudity. Because yeah. Uh, yeah. This well, is a based on an M.A. movie, TV show. Yeah, right. Well, there's definitely nudity. Well, what about those flashback scenes where um, Tyler, Ash Tyler, was... Oh, you know, having, having sex with... With uh, Lelore or whatever her name is. Lorel. Lorel. Um, yeah. I mean, didn't didn't she, her spine have a little something going on? I thought so. Yeah. So, but maybe I don't know. I don't know, man. Okay. It's been a long Whatever. Time. Anyways, I'm just saying. I, I I thought it was a little gratuitous this scene. Okay. Yeah. I just yeah, in there for I guess. shock value. Well, yeah, there's some shock value, and you, you got the little little white baby with the little red umbilical cord and everything, and. Uh, um, he's too cute. He, he's he's the focus of that page for sure. Oh yes, he is. And and why do they have a red deflector shield around them? Uh, it's just because that's what Photoshop did. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so the outline of the baby and the mother, they've got like a little red outline all around the body, and I don't quite know why, but it's there. Yeah, it's the. I mean, it's this is what Tony Chastain, right? So I mean, that's he, that's his art style. Remember when he did the uh, the Star Trek ongoing or Star Trek yeah. Beyond? I can't remember, but it it, it did that a lot too with hmm. the uh, where the backgrounds kind of all washed out and then whatever oh, but... was in the foreground had that little outline. Really? Remember the okay. Green Lantern thing? Remember a lot of times? Well, Green the, uh, Lanterns. But even when it wasn't supposed to, it still had that green outline, even though they didn't have the the ring and stuff. Okay. Yeah. Remember we talked about it a lot there for okay. some reason. I don't okay. know why that one's popping in my head. But anyways, okay. that's that's what it looked like. Yeah, it's all cool. Moving on, this Delore guy, that's the that's the rich husband guy uh, to Jula. What a jerk. I mean, I, I humorously, I was calling him quite the romantic in my notes. But, you know, talking about just changing the terms of their agreement because she hadn't birthed a son within the first year of their contract. It's like, what? There is no romance here. It's completely a marriage of convenience. So you uh, thinking he's got a little Ferengi blood in him? Oh, my God, this guy has Ferengi blood. And, and to even... Put a finer point on it, I think, because if you take a look at the that page where he is uh, standing right next to Jula, and it, it's one of the few things we get to see a, a good get a good look at him. He is he looks just a little bit like Jeff Bezos, just a little bit. And that is who? Uh the guy that owns um, Amazon. Ah. Uh, uh. Uh, he actually was also in the Star Trek Beyond uh, movie. Oh, really? Who was he? Briefly. Well, I wouldn't know. Well, unless he's a main character. No, he 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 was in makeup like this. So oh, okay, he was at the space station with that turncoat uh, alien woman. Okay. So he was like doing something 
helping her uh, briefly, like kidding her up with some kind of a, a translation device or something. So he was only on for a few seconds. Uh, okay. But he actually had kind of an outfit a little bit like the Klingons with the big head and everything. Anyway, whatever. I just thought I'd mention that. So that's so where they Jeff got Bezos. the idea from in, for Star Trek Discovery. They were like, okay, he looked really good. <laughs> let's, let's make those Klingons. Exactly. Mm. Anyway, I just thought I'd mention that. But what a jerk. What a jerk. Yeah, he's, he's, and just because she didn't, I mean, it was in the contract about the one year thing because she doesn't act like, like, like it should have been. Yeah, she's acting like, what are you talking about? Although, um, yeah. Plus, I'm not too clear on what, what it is that he's dissolving because she doesn't have a house. She's the only one left, so I thought that they'd already kind of dissolved the house that is. So I was kind of confused as to what, what she thought. You know, I thought what, that what the too. Raw deal but, was. Well, but she's acting. And she says it. I mean, yeah, no, it's, like, it's like their riches are still hers, and they're together in this wedding. So together, they, they're, 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 they merge their, their resources. But still, they still are, it's still her house's um, assets. Okay. So, um, it's, like, so, it's like they haven't quite merged their checking accounts yet. Gotcha. And he's saying, um, we'll take all your deposits and put it into my checking account, and your name won't be on it. But we know that they didn't have any money because they, they, well, they had money. all that profitable. Well, they had money. It's just that it was going down. So instead of actually making money and being able to put more in the coffers, it was a slow drain of resources over time. I think that's what it was. But it mm-hmm. still had money. And plus it's had its name. And plus it has its uh, seat in the council, which is something he wanted. Right. Um, you know, so, uh, and actually that might have been part of it too. Maybe that way they have two seats in the high council. She has one and he has one because they still have two separate houses. I don't know. Something like right. that. Yeah. So uh, the last thing on this issue that I want to mention is the they spent a lot of time doing those engravings, which we saw in the in the show. Yeah. And then here they explain why some of the bodies on the outside of the ship are hundreds of years old and bones. Right. Uh, yeah. Where we, yeah. we both had the same comment in the show that you know if you died in space and then you're put into a coffin and put into space. You wouldn't decompose like you would if you were on a planet. So, right uh, here, we, here we know why some of those bodies were bones and other ones were just frozen corpses. Right. So it explains a, a bit of detail that they mentioned the TV show that was like, hmm, that's odd. And the fact they even brought it up, and then we, the viewers, are like, well, why the heck did they? What does that help anything? I mean, is that? Is that supposed to? Is this going to come back up later, as some important plot point or something? No, it doesn't. But it's a nice little detail, and now we have it explained. Exactly. Yeah. All right. That was my last one. Anything else for you? I got nothing else. All right. Let's see how it all wraps up. All right. So I get to do this one. This is the uh, Light of Kalis issue four, publish date January twenty eighteen. And we have, uh, I think basically, I think everybody's the same, but uh, I'll say them again. Kristen Bayer and Mike Johnson are writers. Art by Tony Shastine, Colors, J.D. Mettler. Letters by And World Design. Production design, Neil Yataki. Editor, Sarah Gatos. Editorial assists by Chase Marotz. 
publisher Greg Goldstein. We got four covers. Cover A features Takuma's follower Elrel sneering at an opponent with her blade raised in attack. Covers by Tony Shastine. Cover B is a photo from Discovery with two Klingons howling to Kalus on the bridge of the sarcophagus ship. It's like somebody just died. Uh, maybe it's the uh, torchbearer or whoever that was. Maybe that's who they're screaming about. There is, okay, it's a photo cover, so there's no artist. Um, the first retailer incentive cover features Takuma knee-deep in red liquid with the tongs in both hands and backed up by at least five of his followers. He looks very bad-butted. He looks very ready to take on the world, which is kind of interesting because he's really not... He seems a little bit more of a monkish as opposed to, like, warrior style, but he definitely looks like he's warrior dude in this cover. The second retailer incentive variant cover is in black and white and features Discovery blasting out of a white-hot sunburst into space. The cover is by Declan Shavely and Jordi Belair. Elrel continues to tell Tukuvma's origin story. Vok does not believe the part of the story where Tukuvma is having a crisis of faith feeling doubt about his mission to find the beacon of Kalis. Elrel is concerned over Valk's childlike view of the world. Not all of our heroes are perfect. The important thing is, despite Takuma's doubts, he continued the search. Several years prior to his crisis of faith, Takuma and Kel examined the Federation spy device. Takuma thinks the mongrel group of planets placed it close to their borders to spy on the Klingons in preparation for aggression, or at the very least, slow encroachment and eventual takeover. The device is a harbinger of war, Tukubma says, but decides to put it back where they found it rather than destroying it. The war may take years to come, but come it will. The Empire must prepare for it and destroy the invaders utterly. Elrel tells of the search continuing, but also the many wrongs Takuvma corrected along the way. Slave masters killed and chains broken. Sounds like Daenerys Targaryen to me. Hmm. The corrupt ruling class paid a price for their abuse of the powerless. Word spread and the legend grew. Some say he was the reincarnation of Kalos himself. During a meeting of the High Council on Quonos, Takuvma was not celebrated. They discussed how to eliminate the renegade Takuvma. They asked his sister, Jula, of House Mokai, how to best do this while accusing her and her new house of conspiring with Takuvma. Jula and her husband of convenience deny the accusations when unexpectedly another enters the chambers. It is Takuvma himself Jula approaches Takuvma and asks with concern what he is doing here, given his outlaw status. He moves past her, questioning her concern for him, and proceeds to address the council. Council. He warns the coming of war with the Federation and says they must prepare. The chairman scoffs at the backwards people of the Federation, ever being a threat to them, and asks Takuvma if he is using them to become the savior of them all. Takuvma says, no one man can save the Empire, but if they unite, they can save the Empire together. 
more question his motives, saying he sees threats where they don't exist. From outside the chambers a noise is heard. Klingon voices, many Klingon voices. They are chanting his name. Tukuvma, Tukuvma, a sea of them outside the building. Tukuvma says he has delivered his message to the council. Put me in chains if you must, or follow the will of the people. The rich, entitled members of the ruling council are not easily swayed by the wishes of the unwashed. The chairman calls Tukuvma pathetic for thinking he can use a mob to force the council to cave to his demands. Tukuvma says he is not demanding anything, but he has one request. When he finds the beacon of Kalis, he asks that they all join him together to fight. The chairman mockingly agrees to join Tukuvma on that day he finds the mythical beacon that generations of fools have failed to find. He gets up in Tukuvma's face and tells Tukuvma that he will be dust before that day comes. Later, outside the building, a peasant with an injured white skinny boy asks Tukuvma to take them on, despite the fact they are no warriors. Tukuvma agrees and takes them into the house of Tukuvma. He walks on and says to Kel that the boy looks familiar. Kel takes Tukuvma's words as a possible reaction to the boy's skin color of chalk, just like Kel's. Tukuvma says it's the fire in the boy's eyes, not the color of his skin. He asks Kel to prepare the ship for departure. Jaula accosts Tukuvma yet again. She tries to tell him she agrees with him and supports him in his bid to save the Empire. Tukuvma rejects her totally for her past betrayal and murder of their family. He says he no longer has a sister. With that, Elrel ends her retelling of the past events, saying, That was the day both you and I stepped aboard Tukuvma's family ship. It would be years before Tukuvma finally found the beacon of Kalis and fulfilled his destiny. Some years later, an older and hunched-over Kel takes Tukuvma to a locked hangar bay, where he unveils an impressive and beautifully crafted object. Tukuvma asks what it is, and Kel replies, It's the beacon we have been looking for. He made it himself, and has come to see it as a tool they need to help the true light of Kalis to unite the houses. Tukuvma himself. The decadent great houses all expect Tukuvma to fail, but with this and Tukuvma's ability to galvanize his people, they will deny them their foolish wishes. Sometime later, Tukuvma deploys the beacon in an asteroid field. Vok, with a pained and shocked look on his face, utters, He lied to us? He created the very beacon he came to find? Elrel says the beacon worked, and they should all be thankful to Kuvma made that faithful decision since the Empire has answered his call to war. Tukuvma sacrifices integrity, his internal sense of honor for his people. What would you sacrifice for your people, Vok? The narrative speeds back to the binary stars, fixated on a long figure on the bridge of a very old ship. A voice reports a Federation ship approaches. Takuma orders, light the beacon. The beginning.
Hmm. So that's how it all started. Yes, yes. It more or less ends where the parts of the first episode begin. At least the part where they actually come into contact with the Klingons. Which is right. nice. That's a nice way to end this. Yeah, they didn't show the, the fight on the beacon and all that stuff, but no. uh, they didn't need to. Uh, no, 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 no. Well, you don't want to repeat. I mean, this is kind of events from the Klingon standpoint. And, sure. and yeah, they could have included that, but uh, they didn't. And by the way, you mentioned that, the fight on the beacon. So if I remember correctly, they referred to that person that Michael accidentally killed as being like the torchbearer or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So... You think that was Kel? <laughs> that's why we don't Well, it could have been. Yeah, oh, well, that's an interesting point, isn't it? It could have been anybody because he was in that big getup and stuff, that big spacesuit. Right. So uh, it could have been anybody. Hmm. Yeah, it could be. In the TV show, they made it seem like the torchbearer was a big deal. Like somebody that was hanging around the beacon, you know, for long periods of time, you know, kind of like just the the lighthouse keeper or whatever. Right, exactly. And, and then when he died, they had to have a replacement, and then that's when Valk came to the fore and volunteered to be the torchbearer, I think, and yep. did the whole flame thing and whatever. So, and then that was a big thing. Ooh! But they didn't talk about any of that. I mean, Mm-mm. in this, in this comic book series. So they just whipped this thing up. I mean, it took a while. I mean, it took hell a long time to put this thing together. But they just threw it out there and got it fired up or getting ready to fire it up. And it's like, there was no time for there being some big, long tradition of having a lighthouse keeper there. I mean, that whole thing seems retcon. I don't know. Uh, a little. Like, it doesn't fit well with what we saw in the TV series. Right. Yeah, so how long were they out there after he built the ship and before they fired it up? I mean, Yeah, oh, well... Hmm. Yeah, because this scene doesn't show him... This this scene shows him finding the the, Chris, the, the beacon, the, the Federation thing. And then they go back to Kronos. Then they gather all these people from... Uh, you know, the slave pits and all that stuff. And then years later, he shows them that he created a beacon. So then it doesn't say how much time happened between that scene and uh, them launching it, right? No, but so you I, don't, I don't think it was long. Too long, he was just like, do it. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, okay, so they found the beacon. We said before, we thought that was the beacon that Giorgio and the Shinzu came out to check out, you know, why. So, I mean, that happened at the beginning of this issue. Although it did jump around in time a lot. Okay, so I I was kind of talking myself into the idea that it was pretty pretty soon after Cal showed him the beacon that he created that he actually used it. Right. But they are jumping around back and forth in time a lot. I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe not. I'm with you that it, it it could be read that he did it right away, right? Launched it and then yeah. lit it. But then right. you could also say he launched it and then kept kept watch over it for years for some reason and then lit it when, when he thought he had a reason to, when, when they were finally getting attacked. Yeah. Because if he would have lit it without any, like, threat, then... Um, oh, yeah. Then, then he wouldn't be able to unite. Well, exactly. I mean, if he could bring a Federation starship to the fore, light the beacon... And set up the scene. Yeah, that'd be optimal. 
Right. And they happened to have that subspace relay or whatever it was. Perfect. Anyway. Well, it worked. The big Klingon war that we had never really heard about took place. Right. What was the right. number of uh, dead Federation people? Oh, what, from the TV series? Yeah, when they come back from the Mirror Universe and they're told how bad. How oh, bad I don't are. remember, but it's a lot. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> it's bad. Yeah. You think we would have heard about that at some point in the show, the original show? Well, shows. yeah, the only thing we really heard was what Garth of Izar or whatever, him refer to some big tactical thing he did against the Klingons. But really, that's it. It was that, that's, that's just one little engagement, I think. And I don't know that that actually hinted at a Klingon war, per se. Right. But other than that, no. No, we, we never heard that. I mean, it always seemed like it, it was kind of a cold war between the Klingons and the Federation. Uh, they, they had not engaged in all-out war. Uh, at least that's the impression I had. Nothing like the obviously mentioned Romulan War. So we knew that took place. Right. Balance of Terror talked about that. So well, the Earth Romulan War, where we never even saw them. Right, we just, exactly. We just did ship to ship and stuff. Yeah, ship to ship combat. We never actually had ground assaults or anything like that. Never had a a survivor from a, a, a Romulan ship that we were able to get our hands on. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yep. Seems seems unlikely. <laughs> All right, uh, so I did like how they went around and were uh, getting uh, getting uh, people from the slave pits and the gladiatorial uh, yeah. to be the savior of the Klingon people. Yeah, I kind of like that a lot. Yeah, he he definitely went to save the people, to help the people. The heck with the rich people. The heck with the ruling class. Right, and. I alluded to it in the synopsis. Daenerys Targaryen, she's doing the same thing in Game of Thrones. Mm, um, I haven't watched that. Yeah, so she's she's using her army to free a lot of slaves who come to join her and help build up her armies. Right. I did think that uh, in, in this scene when he frees the women that are in the gladiatorial pits that, uh, again, some un- unnecessarily nudity with uh, nah. the women, the women have to be naked, fighting with these long dual tip spears. Just seemed a little unnecessary. Gratuitous. Yeah, yeah, but that goes to show the decadence of what's going on here. Right. So they're taking their own people, women, and to add to the degradation, they make them fight naked. <laughs> right. So, but this scene definitely has a. a you know, with some well-placed fingers uh, so that you can cover up certain areas on the woman's body. Yes. We see a clear shot of both their front and their back, and they do not have ridges aside true. from their heads. True. That is true. That is for true. I definitely see enough of that one lady's back. <laughs> Again, so it just it's just kind of weird because I always thought Klingons had extra uh, – don't they even have like an extra like like a hook or something on their toe or something? No, nah, uh, I don't remember cause, that. Because the Klingons always have that like hook on their boot, the old Klingons. Yeah. And so I always thought that was actually part of their anatomy. Structure. But I guess Worf doesn't have an ex- a special boot, so maybe maybe it's just... I think it's just fashion. Fashion. So fashion. that they can kick people. 
Stabbing. Fashion. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. But I think that they showed Worf without a shirt and he had a bumpy chest or a bumpy back. Oh, he's something. got it. Oh, of course he does. I mean, yeah, they show so, that very clearly. So uh, I, don't like, I don't like that here in this issue, yeah. these issues. Yeah. When Dr. Crusher was uh, replacing a spine. Right. That's what I, I think thought. they made it very clear. But, I mean, how many things are different from the TNG time frame Klingons and, and, and the reboot Klingons here? Right. Well, I'm okay with them looking different, but they, they should not look exactly 100% human with just a weird head. I agree. I, th- there should be more in the spine and everything. That, that's like yeah. the uh, that's like that's the Mego uh, line. We can we can make a whole bunch of human figures, and all we got to do is put a, a different head. head on it, and it's now Gorn. <laughs> <laughs> make a thing head and put it on a normal body. He's now the thing. <laughs> don't don't look at the normal physique. He's got a he's got a thing head. Well, okay, okay, you can't do that because the thing is huge. Yeah, well, Mego did it. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, that's cheap. <laughs> Well, at the uh, time, it was awesome because it gave you a, a kid was now able to play as the thing versus Captain Kirk. But, uh, but in reality, he, you know, they took some artistic license. So okay, so I, I'm not familiar with this toy line. They really encouraged you to buy one body and different, and then just go out and buy different heads. No, they is that sold, what you're saying? No, they they use the same body, and all they did is put different clothes on it okay. and a different head. So, okay. like, okay. the thing was wearing a little fabric uh, jumpsuit that was had, you know, rock-looking things on his chest and stuff. Uh, the Gorn was the same way. It was okay. a human body with a lizard head, and then he had – actually, I think the Gorn actually was wearing a Klingon outfit. But that made him a Gorn and not a, a human. Well, the Gorn is so different from humans <laughs> in the body. That's ridiculous. Now, there was something similar to that. I know I've met, I mentioned it before on the podcast. I think perhaps when Brian was around, Captain Action. So Captain Action had a similar thing, but uh, – so you, you get your Captain Action, and then you need to buy the outfits. Right. And the outfits would turn him into Aquaman or Batman or whatever. Yeah, um, similar thing. Similar Except thing. Except here it was but, a different figure. Yeah, yeah. But and also they never tried to sell you a thing costume for Captain Action. I mean it it's ridiculous. All the things Captain Action could be is roughly like a guy sized person, like a normal right. kind of person. Anyway. So in regards to uh you know, Star Trek toys, uh yeah. there's a TV show called uh, the The Toys That Made Us on Netflix okay. right now. And and they do a whole episode on Star Trek toys. And huh. Obviously, they talk about Mego quite a bit because that was a big player back in the day. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you like toys, you like comic books, you like Star Trek, uh, go go watch that. It was the the first episode of season two uh, was Star Trek. The first episode of season one was Star Wars. So I mean, there's a lot of good a lot of goodies there. And what's the name of that again? It's called the the toys that made us. So each episode they they take a deep dive into a particular toy brand. And so you got Star Wars, uh, G.I. Joe was an episode, He-Man was an episode, Barbie was an episode, Hello Kitty, Transformers, and uh, I forgot what the other – oh, Legos. So those are the eight. Very good. Very very, very interesting. Very good TV show. Although I question the name of the show, The Toys That Made Us. So somehow these toys influenced the adults we became or something? Exactly. You played with a, a guy in a spaceship. Therefore, when you grew up, you became an astronaut. 
I never became an astronaut. Well, but you could have. Well, I could have, <laughs> but I didn't. Anyways. Okay. So, yeah, give it a watch. It's good. Cool. Okay, so the last thing I want to say is pertains to the shape of the Light of Kalos. So Cal made this thing out of tinsel, and the Klingons fell for it. Okay, fine. But the look of the thing is very interesting because it kind of looks like a bird of prey with the wings on the downward pump. They come down pretty low. That's what this kind of looks like, the light of Kalos. It kind of looks like the top where the light is is kind of sort of the head body. And then, then as it, it, it comes down, very awkwardly shaped thing, it's like wings on the downward beat. And it's cool looking, awkward looking, but what does it look like? To me, it looks just like some of the smaller Klingon ships that were used in the Discovery TV show, of which I thought they looked very awkward. But uh, I think they might have been their version of the uh, bird of prey, the smaller bird of prey, uh, as opposed to a heavy cruiser, the smaller ship, like the one they used in Search for Spock. Anyway, so that's why I always thought that ship was as I was watching the Discovery TV show. This thing, this light of Kalis, looks like one of those ships. And I'm confused because, at least in this four-parter, they never show any Klingon ships that look like, like the light of Kalis looks in this, like, in this issue. Right. So you so, think he, he made this from a bird, a bird of prey that they had? I, I don't know. But if he did, it would have made it even a harder sell. <laughs> yeah, hey, it just looks it looks like a bird of prey, but don't worry about that. It's actually the light of Kalis, which is thousands of years old or whatever, <laughs> however old it's supposed to be. A thousand right. years old. Yeah, there you go. That's... Yeah, good point. Yeah, to me it looks more like a Romulan ship with I guess the the wing the wingspan cuz Romulan ships always have that wing look. Right. Yep. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. But yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh he spent a lot of time carving on that one too. They do a lot of carvings on Takuma's ship. Right, and this is metal, right? I mean it's not like you're carving wood or <laughs> right. or maybe carving onyx, your or you know, something like that. They do make them out of metal, right? So you're carving a strong high tensile <laughs> metal? Yeah. Fascinating. With just a chisel and a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> they have a lot of time to waste. <laughs> wow, they got a lot of time. Or, that's, that's right, a lot of time. Anyway, that's so that's my last comment. Although overall, I just want to say, I think these four issues are a very fine uh, prequel that gives you a lot of backstory, at least to the Klingon world that led up to the Discovery TV series. I thought it was very effective, well-written, well-drawn, mm-hmm. Uh, high-quality stuff. Yeah, I, I was a little put off when I found out that it was going to be a, a Klingon-based story and not a Federation-based story set mm-hmm. in this timeline. But right. uh, when we started reading it, I really dug it. And, and I think that Kristen Bear, who is – you know, she's a novelist. Uh, she actually wrote an episode of the, uh, the, the TV show Discovery. So she's kind of mm-hmm. like the multimedia guru – there uh, for the Discovery side. Um, she obviously knows the material, both the original Prime universe and this new universe, and is did a good job to me mixing the two here. Because I never felt like the Klingons here, 
aside from the way they look, they never acted different than what I always pictured as Klingons, which I think the Discovery TV show, they kind of acted a little weird sometimes uh, with some of their things they were saying. They yeah. kind of seemed non-Klingon, but, but here, perfect. Yeah. So, oh, go, go ahead. No. So, so Christian Bear actually has a formal title? I mean, she's like paid by Paramount or or yeah, yeah, she's, whatever. Uh, C- like the multimedia coordinator, or I forgot what her her actual title is. Huh, interesting. But yeah, she's uh for Discovery. So it it was a new position that they had for Discovery just to make sure that that show fit in well with the uh, established universe. Hmm, it's good. It's good. They needed somebody like that. Oh yeah, that's great. I mean, a lot of times you give that kind of a job to an executive that isn't particularly creative. <laughs> and in this case, you're actually giving it to a really, really good writer. I wonder if they learned their lesson from people making complaints about the J.J. Abrams movies not fitting in at all. And then that they were like, okay, well, we'll try to – we'll bring somebody in that really knows their stuff and right. uh, and, and try to rein us in a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, all right, good stuff. But uh, you ready to move on to some gold key here? Yes, completely. Let's do it. All right. Let's switch gears a little bit, Ken, and move to a comic book from a long, long time ago in a galaxy very near and dear. Uh, Some gold key from 1975. (laughs) Issue number 28 by any chance? It is issue 28. Yeah, so this has nothing to do with the Discovery. We did not pick it on purpose. We didn't think, oh, it would be good to talk about Discovery and issue 28 because – they're not alike, so don't. So just get that out of your head. You know, cleanse your palate because we're going for a different vibe here. All right. So this issue came out January 1975. It is entitled "The Mimicking Menace." The writer was George Cashton, and the artist is Alberto Gioletti. The cover is maybe one of the last times they do one of these painted covers. I don't know for sure, uh, but I think we're getting close to the end when they kind of change styles on the cover. But this shows Spock standing outside of a red shuttle, and he's blasting a crew member with his phaser, while there's another crew member um, kind of on his hands and knees in front of the one that's getting blasted. Uh, Then there's a little catchphrase that says, dead planet, question mark, or deadly, question mark. 25 cents would have cost you to get this beauty of an issue all right so as all gold key there's a little teaser page at the front this one shows spock telling mccoy to shoot at kirk and a woman who's kind of standing in the background shooting at them and obviously mccoy is reluctant to do so so the story starts with the enterprise arriving at an asteroid named tactus 2 a woman named lieutenant calder requests to survey the rock in a shuttle instead of just beaming down. Kirk approves this, and he, Spock, Calder, and two security persons all take the shuttle down to the asteroid. Once they land, like the minute their skids hit the ground, they notice that there's another shuttle, just like the Galileo, that's uh, maybe a couple hundred feet in front of them. Confused, because this ship wasn't there before, he orders the security team to walk over there and investigate alone. The security team consists of a man and woman that we don't know from previous issues. But as they're walking towards this new Galileo shuttlecraft, the volcano that they're next to starts to erupt. They decide to take cover within the mysterious ship, 
And then as soon as they walk in, they're knocked out by these strange, mysterious lights. Then exact duplicates of themselves appear. These duplicates contact the captain and let them know that they're okay and that they're piloting this new shuttle to escape the lava. The copies fly the fake ship into the actual top of the volcano, and once they land and disembark, uh, carrying the unconscious crew members, uh, the real people, then the shuttle just starts to fade away into the light. Then they just kind of drop two people and walk on down to find the real Kirk down at the bottom of the volcano. Anyways, the two fake members arrive at the real shuttle, and as soon as they walk towards Calder and Kirk, the two start to feel woozy, and they get knocked out as well, just like the security personnel. Once Kirk and Calder are knocked out, duplicates of them start to appear within the light. Spock departs the shuttle, and he sees the strange sight of all these extra crew members there. Then he too starts to feel dizzy, and he rushes back to the shuttle. McCoy and Scotty pick this exact time to beam down to check on things. As soon as they appear, Spock actually starts firing his phaser at them, telling them not to go anywhere near Kirk. The end of part one. Part two starts with Scotty and McCoy following Spock's lead, and they shoot stun blasts at the two people that look like Kirk and Calder. While they're firing stun shot at the fake duplicates, the duplicates are actually shooting uh, phase one phasers, which I'm assuming means killing the phasers seem to disrupt something within the duplicates, and they start to fade in a vanish of light. The volcano then starts to erupt again, but this time, instead of lava, it's shooting out giant boulders. The Starfleet crew are able to get everybody back into the shuttle, and they ride out the storm. Scotty orders the Enterprise to beam down a robot, and then when the robot's there, they order the robot to walk into the volcano to scan everything with his video camera. Kirk and Scotty watch on a TV... And they see another ship down in the bed of the volcano, along with skeletons of aliens. Then the camera feed is suddenly lost. A short time later, the robot returns. And then everybody starts to feel tired again and starts falling to the ground. As new versions of themselves start to appear out of nowhere. Spock, not affected as bad as the others, requests the Enterprise to fire negative ions into the volcano. They do so, and the lights within the volcano stop moving, and the crew start to regain their strength. Now, there's two of everyone, except for McCoy, Spock, and Scotty. Spock tells them to start shooting at the standing, stronger versions of the crew, as he thinks those are the fakes. And everybody opens fire again. And this seems to be the right call, because they all disappear in a shower of light. Everyone is then gathered back up into the Galileo, and they fly back to the Enterprise. Calder and Spock explain that there's a life form on that planet, or asteroid, excuse me, that absorbs life that lands on it. Kirk states that the Federation law prevents the Enterprise from just blasting away the life forms from space, so he just hopes that the next explorers are a little bit more careful than they were. The end. Wow. Good stuff, right? Oh. <laughs> uh, okay. So this is a pointless story. Um you know, it's kind of in, in alignment with the mission to seek out new life and new civilization. But other than that, why did anybody bother to write this? <laughs> 
Well, see, they had to earn their quarter, so they uh, <laughs> wanted to get the quarter from the little kids, so they made it. Yeah. Now, all books, all stories, all comics, all episodes, you know, there's always the filler episode or the bad episode or Clean. whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, the it clunker. happens. But this one is just uh, – all right, I'm going to tell you why I hate this one so bad. I had to read it like three times. <laughs> so to understand before, what the heck was going on? It's, it's not It's not good, so it's not fun to read it three times. <laughs> but I still – like I couldn't figure out where all these Kirks were coming from because it seemed like the, when he shot the ion into the the volcano, I thought, okay, so the the little fake people are now gone. But no, they're not gone. It's just the people, the lights inside of the volcano stopped moving, but the lights that were the people didn't stop moving. They were still there. So I don't know. But, like I said. But shooting them with phasers never... took care of them. Yeah, it disrupted them, I guess. I don't know. Made them Oh, vanish. you're generous. <laughs> oh, you're very generous. <laughs> Yeah, and and they and then in her in their explanation at the end, they're like, "Oh, the uh, the the light molecules or whatever are in the same structure or the same, uh, you know, the same pattern as a protein molecule or whatever." And I'm like, "That makes no sense at all." Um, uh, so I left it out of the synopsis. But it, it, this this episode was <laughs> this show was hard to read. Yeah, it was. So, uh, of course, one of the easier things on the eyes was Lieutenant Calder, who I am wondering, what are her responsibilities on the Enterprise anyway? What is she? Well, she's is not she a, a science person. I is she a doctor? She's a doctor. Okay. Because she looks like a cute little Barbie doll. Right. And she's wearing the red, so that would mean engineering or something. Yes, that it I would. Think. Not sciences. So what the heck? But uh, I think she's definitely some sort of botanist or geologist or something. She seems to be, but they're not specific about that. No. So um, given her looks, maybe if they ever do make this into uh, a movie or a TV show, <laughs> maybe they can get Margot Robbie to play her or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think I think this issue is going to be the basis for the Quentin Tarantino Star Trek movie. <laughs> He's like, you know, back in 1975, I really liked this issue. Uh, it changed my life. You know, I was talking about classic Taz episode, but really I meant <laughs> issue, issue 28. The Mimesy Minic. Exactly. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. Yes, yes. Oh, that would throw us all. Exactly. So, okay, so, okay, so Margot Robbie, obviously, would be Calder. And you would have uh, who Leonardo maybe as Kirk? Why not? Oh, that's uh, right. They're not going to use the real the real cast. Oh, not supposedly not. Yeah, I don't and know. Then, I'm I'm still concerned about. Uh, I mean, the two security people. They're not wearing red either. I mean, well, I, they're sorry, wearing green. The they're wearing green. But the and, woman there looked so. And, what? What? I, that's what I wanted to talk about because her hair. Looks like it's just colored in with marker or something. <laughs> it's very flat. Yeah, it's just like it. it and so I, I was bringing up her because I mean, who would play the, the, that person? Oh, so, um, so much marker hair. <laughs> I, I think I think a who, who played Spock's mother in the two thousand nine movie. 
I think a younger Winona Ryder would be perfect for that. Uh, that that security person that yeah. has a green shirt on. There's a green shirt. They both and, the security people have green shirts. Okay. And the guy looks like Kirk. If his shirt wasn't green, I would, I kept thinking that it was he, it was. He looks a little like Kirk. A little bit, a little bit like, or the way. Uh, let me see. The way they draw Kirk. Right? Not right. that he looks like Kirk. He looks right. like yeah. He looks like Gold Key Kirk. Yeah. And yeah. and how do you like the coloring of the Galileo? This one. So in the cover, it's red. Yes. And then in the book, it's, all red. It's all yeah. red. At least what we see of it, the front part of it, all red. But then in the book itself, it looks like a airplane because it's white on the top and then green on the bottom. Oh, airplanes are green on the bottom? Well, you know how like Delta and stuff has like the two-toned <laughs> airplane. Air, it's two-toned, two-toned. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they chose green. Yeah, so green. it's like, who are these people? <laughs> I mean oh. – which version of Star Trek is this? Because we got the Discovery timeline, we got the Kelvin timeline, the Prime timeline, and the Gold Key timeline. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, it's great. It's yeah, I didn't even. Great. I didn't even mention they. There's a part where they're surfing on lava. I cut that out of the synopsis because I just thought it was too silly. It made no sense. So the yeah. volcano erupts. And the Galileo is first engulfed in the lava and then is somehow able to kind of surf on the surface. Oh, of the my lava. God. Okay, so, so the shuttle does. The shuttle. So, yeah. So since when does a lava flow have a glassy, slippery top surface that the shuttle is just going to be lifted up on top of and it goes for a nice little bobsled run to the bottom? Does that have any basis in science? Or what no. we have observed, especially lately, you know, the, uh, the Hawaiian Hawaii. volcano going. All the video I've ever seen, it looks like it's kind of like uh, glowing underneath and there's like, like dark, like pumice kind of stuff kind of cooling at the top. Uh, I don't think any of that's like a slick, glassy surface. No. But then it also bears the question, is it really even lava? Or is it just more manifestations of the light being? And if it is the light being, why? Yeah. Why did it create lava that potentially pushed them further away from the the lip of the volcano, which is obviously where they want them all to go eventually, because that's where the other ships were. That's where the alien skeletons were. So obviously they want them all to be up there so they can absorb their energy. So why create fake lava and push them down the mountain more? I don't know. And then how did the dudes – I mean the two fake security people – they were inside the volcano, and then they walked down because they didn't have a ship anymore. So did they walk down the cooling lava? I don't know, man. Um, this, this issue this issue was so hard to follow. <laughs> but of course, what was our favorite gadget that appeared? We have we oh, have we have Ray the robot showing up. <laughs> and and he's a metal automaton kind of guy, uh, two arms, two legs, and he's got a camera built into him. So at least they didn't have him shoulder some huge 1960s-looking camera. At least they thought there was enough technology that by then you could build a, a video camera into the robot. Fascinating. Yep. I think it's that third eye that he has on I his think, forehead. I think so, too. I, I agree with you. 
and but they did have to bring down a big giant TV with rabbit ears <laughs> for them to watch it. So they bring a big a big Zenith TV um, sitting there with knobs on the bottom, just like we know and love, uh-huh. and uh, with rabbit ears, completely right, and on these skinny little little legs, and that's what they watch the great show of Ray the Robot as he goes in, and right. it's like. Okay. I mean, I know it was written in the 70s, but it's like, you know, you can go out and buy, you spend like 150 bucks, and you can get a drone, and it flies around, it's got a camera in it, and it could do the same thing without being so ridiculous. <laughs> right. Well, we didn't know that in 1975. Well, I, I, I know, but I mean, why, why build a humanoid robot to do something like that? A box with tracks. Put it on <laughs> tracks. Lost in Space did it so well. They wanted to. That's that was well, their template. The Lost in Space robot had tracks. Yeah, but, but he looked whatever. Awesome. Yeah, this looks more like C three PO. Even though oh, I know C three PO didn't exist yet. Yeah, it is kind of funny how he looks a lot like C three PO. Well, he's a humanoid robot, metal robot. Right. Yeah, he's not gold or anything, but still, yeah. No, he's 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 gray. Yeah, he's got a kind of a flat top, but yeah, he's got arms and legs, and he looks kind of kind of shiny, I guess. Yeah. Anyways, uh, uh, anyways a little so. a little like Bender. Anyway. <laughs> Bender. So uh, again, I didn't like the Spock is immune to everything because he's Vulcan. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously these aliens or whatever. I'm assuming they weren't humans. Yeah, exactly. The ones that are there. So right. Um, I don't see why his species would have given this thing a hard time. The robot's not human. It seemed to do okay with taking it out. Yeah. You still there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. He's got kind of quiet. Oh. Anyways, uh, let's see. What else can we say about this issue? Um, that we haven't said already? Did they I, go I, back I... and pick up the security people? No, I, well, I don't remember them doing that. Well, yeah. okay, so when everybody, when they started disappearing, um, yeah, they're right there, right? Woo, well, Mr. Spock was right. Isn't that green-shirted? And then, and then the girl with the bad hair. She's there? Yeah, and the, um, yeah, I mean, they're both there. Aren't they? Yeah, but Why? Why would they be there? They were in the 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 people didn't carry them back down from the volcano. What? I don't know. But they're there at the end. That's what's important. There you go. That's Girl with the bad hair make sense. and the Kirk, the guy that looks like a Kirk but uh, yeah, green green shirt on. Yeah, which which is really our skipper. Yeah. So where did they come from? <laughs> okay. Well, maybe they woke up and walked down. After maybe okay, maybe they walked down after the uh, the negative ions were shot into the volcano. That's when they woke up, came down the volcano, and then um, oh yeah yeah. So here, because there's a scene a few pages before where she's like waking up, getting right strength back. Yeah, and, and then the Kirk look alike. Me too. Try to get See, out. That's where I was confused. I thought they were down there with Kirk already. I didn't catch that. They were walking. They were then walked down. Okay, so they were the ones that shot the fake Kirks. So they're down Matt's there. Scotty. They're da- yeah. They're down there. Well, okay. So they're down there with Scotty. I mean, isn't that Scotty? 
<clears throat> like pointing in the next frame, the next frame. As they hurry back to the Galileo, okay, so yeah. hurry back to yeah. the Galileo, shoot them, they're the doubles. Okay, so they got there just in time for the, uh, the, the firing fest. Yeah, anyways, it was so confusing. Yeah, no, not good. Uh, anyways, good stuff. Although I am seeing a, an awfully interesting uh, purchasing opportunity, a scary life-size monster ghost, only $1. Eyes glow in the dark. Wow, what could... Over seven feet tall. Gee, obeys your commands. What could that possibly be for a buck? What kind of cheap butt thing could they have sold to some poor kid? Maybe even me. That was (laughs) at that age for that. So you could have either bought four issues of this comic. Fine tone. Or you could have bought... The, the the ghost. The ghost. Uh, the monster ghost. It's a monster ghost, and it's only a buck. No, the uh, the advertisement I thought was most interesting is the uh, the daisy guns there at the end. Oh, when it's, it's, oh yeah. What what gun is right for your age group? And then it has, like, this one is good for 8 to 12 years old. No, wait. <laughs> yeah. 8, eight to 10 year old, you get the uh, the Model 104 Super Scope. And then um, the the ten to twelve year olds get the model one hundred four or no the model twenty five BB gun so at least it's a BB gun uh huh and then twelve years and older you get the model seven four five four rifle cool like, wow <laughs> they would never put that in a in a magazine now <laughs> but no matter which one you choose you will get the high quality of Daisy which will make sure that that BB comes right back and takes an eye out. Shoot your eye out. You'll shoot your eye out. <laughs> exactly. Uh, now, the other advertisement I thought was interesting in here was for um, – I forgot what it was. It, Dusty the the Fashion Doll or something? I, I've never even heard of this thing. But, Dusty uh, the Fashion Doll. Okay. Uh, let me find it. I saw it somewhere. Oh, there it is. Meet Dusty, America's most beautiful doll. Oh, my God. Okay, I, I found it. Yeah, it's, she she's she's like a Barbie ripoff or something. Right. Yeah, I never heard of it, but uh, but it's weird because they're kind of depicting her with kind of an upskirt view a couple of times, and I'm like, <laughs> really? who are they aiming this advertisement to? It's a doll. Why do the upskirt shot while she's playing tennis? I don't know, but she's very active. She's she's quite the athlete. Yeah, she's a ba- softball or baseball player, a volleyball player. A golfer, a tennis, tennis. Yeah. Okay, and she's got tennis. A beauty model. Oh, and she's got she's got a award. She must be a beauty pageant winner. That's great. Yeah. yeah. That's uh that's Kenner. When they were scraping the bottom, going, "Oh, I sure hope one day we get that Star Wars license." And... <laughs> Could save the company. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's it. All right. So we're uh, we're, we're reduced to calling out. Cheesy ads. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the last thing I want to say about the issue, though, is the end. When he's talking about, well, the Federation won't let me destroy this life yeah. form. Yeah. So I hope that the next people are fair better. Wouldn't they launch some probes or something that says, you know. A warning beacon. Yeah. Don't come here. Warning beacon. Yeah. Instead of just. Well, good luck, guys. Or uh, what's that general order, whatever? 
you can't go back to uh, Talos for whatever. Right, right. That's the, de- the or five or whatever. Death penalty. Death penalty. Okay, so so maybe it isn't the death penalty, but you should just peop- let you know, let people know. Right. Yeah. But I think it's funny because he actually points out the Federation won't let me destroy this this uh, life form when we know good and well that uh, they destroyed a whole planet of uh, <laughs> in, in issue number one. Yes, the, the conscious plants or, or right. intelligent yeah. plants, whatever. Yeah, which, I, which ironically is also issue 29. So uh, the next issue oh, is me, really? uh, a reprint of issue number one. Oh, really? Yeah, there's a couple of issues where they just reprinted uh, a previous issue. Oh my! God. And 29 was the first time they started that. Okay, so they're not putting much into the writing, <laughs> um, and the artistry is is random, right? And then they are actually just reprinting. <sighs> okay. Hey, Ken, you 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 yourself remember getting that plant issue. Oh, I remember that. And you said you didn't that was know if it was issue childhood. number one or issue 29. So right. you could have... Maybe I got 29. It was 29, and you would have never been exposed to that issue if you hadn't have... Uh, if they hadn't have reprinted it for you. That's a, that's, a, that's a brilliant point, Donovan. I think you're right about that. I do hope and, they reprint the Voodoo Planet as another... Oh my gosh. <laughs> the paper mache uh, Europe, or Eiffel Tower, or whatever. France, yeah. France. No, I think it was all of it because the Coliseum was there too, and all that other okay. stuff. Okay, that was a good one. Oh boy, that's worthy of a reprinting. <laughs> okay, all right. Anything else? Nah. You beat this one up enough? Yeah, I think you, we did. You know, usually the gold key, I can find something I like, but for whatever reason, this one was just too confusing, and maybe I was just not in the right frame of mind or what. But man, it was hard to read. And it, I had to keep reading it, and I still didn't quite get what was going on. Yeah. And I dislike episode or issues, and I really dislike this one. <laughs> <laughs> and I like some of them. It's just, right. you know, I, I tend to dislike them more than liking them. Uh, but this one I really dislike. Right, right. It's, yeah. just, it's just pointless. A pointless exercise in wasting my time. I mean, sorry for the folks that were involved. You didn't in have to read it this, four but, times. Well, there you go. <laughs> Thank God I didn't synopsize it. Yeah. Uh, so, Kirk and the Enterprise go on a planet where duplicates are made, and they overcome the alien life form. See you next time. Boom. Oh, that would have been Done. your synopsis because I've never heard you give a short synopsis. <laughs> <laughs> no, that wouldn't have been. However. Okay. Fine. Yeah, your synopsis for issue five of Discovery. I, th- I went and uh, made a sandwich, <laughs> but it was all gold. I couldn't cut out any of it. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, I know it was long, but it was the thrill-packed ending. It was. It was the you know we waited months for that issue. Exactly. All the loose threads were tied up nicely. Okay. So. Anyways, so what do we do? Uh, so, uh, New Visions. We haven't done that for a while, since uh, episode 255 or something like that. Right. So, yeah. So, New Visions, uh, number four and five. So, New Visions, for since it's been a while. Yes, it's the been The John a while. Byrne photo novels that are, uh, I, I, I call them photo novels, but they're comic books, but they're in the photo novel style. Right. So. Lot, lots of Photoshop. 
Exactly. Lots of photoshopping and uh, in using a lot of the footage from the original Taz show with extra stuff um, pasted in. But it looks kind of good. I mean, that last one had that robot, which was totally Burns' creation. Sure. And he's got him inserted into uh, this Taz footage. And, uh, yeah, it works. It works. It's cool. Yep, yep. So far, I've enjoyed uh, – we've done four issues because there was a, a zero issue. So I'm looking forward to doing more. So I think the next one has mud in it, so I know you love your mud. Well, I don't know about loving. Loving. But, but I, do, I do like Harry Mud. yeah. I think uh, especially the new incarnation of him on Discovery. Oh, I thought you meant the girl mud from uh, the Kelvin universe. No. No. Who we've only seen in the uh, comic books. Right. Another one of those countdown things that uh, that only us cool people know about. Exactly. We're in the know. <laughs> All right. Well, then let's uh, close up shop, and we'll be back with some uh, some mud and whatever else is in issue number five. There you go. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. On the review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic, second name Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.